0: Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So I wonder what your view of prayer is. How do you view prayer when you hear that word or when you talk to someone about it, perhaps? How do you view it? You know, there are many different ideas out there. For instance, there are the views, which surely are important, of Chuck Norris, right, cult martial arts actor. He says, exercise, prayer, and meditation are examples of calming rituals. They have been shown to induce a happier mood and provide a positive pathway through life's daily frustrations. So there's this calming thing about prayers. Or... What about the views of the now-deceased crooner, Frank Sinatra? He says, basically, I'm for anything that gets you through the night, be it prayer, tranquilizers, or a bottle of Jack Daniels. (laughs) What about NASCAR champion, Jeff Gordon? He says this, I'll do a little prayer here and there if I feel I need to. Or perhaps my favorite of the uh, great American philosophers of the 1990s MC Hammer, who said, and feel free to join in with me if you know where I'm heading, you've got to pray, pray just to make it today. Thank you to my wife. <laughs> uh, yes, there are many different views on prayer in our American uh, society today, but I think there are three that stand out to me. And the first is this, it's that prayer is a crutch, it's a crutch. You know, my older kids have recently been getting into a show that I was watching as a college kid, way back when. The Simpsons, right, remember that? And yes, they're still making more episodes of this. They're like, I think on season 33 right now. 34. 34, thank you, Caleb. (laughs) And one of my favorite episodes is from near the beginning. It's called Bart Gets an F. And in this episode, Bart Simpson, the main character in the show, chooses not to do an assignment. And he's not a great student, okay? He's kind of a naughty character. And realizing what the repercussions of this will be, he gets down on his knees and fervently begins to pray. And he says, well, old timer, I guess this is the end of the road. I know I haven't been a good kid, but if I have to go into school tomorrow, I'll fail the test and be held back. I just need one more day to study. Lord, I need your help. Or overhearing this, Lisa, his younger sister, and she's a straight A student, says, our prayer, the last refuge of a scoundrel. (laughs) The last (laughs) refuge of a scoundrel. (laughs) I love that line. If you haven't watched it, it happens to snow that night and and, uh, he gets his chance. You see, to Lisa and many others, prayer is something that people do when they just have nowhere else to turn to. It's a crutch for desperate times. And possibly to them, it's a complete waste of time. But secondly, it can also be a means to impress. I don't know if you've thought of it that way, but the story is told of a family that invites their pastor and his wife over to dinner and wanting to impress them with just the great Christian standards that they are upholding in their home. The mother decides to ask their five-year-old son if he'll say grace. Well, he looks really blank. And then there's this awkward pause while nothing is said. And then she just gives him a reassuring smile. And she says, well, darling, just say what Daddy said at breakfast this morning. And obediently, the boy repeats, saying, oh, God, we've got those awful people coming over for dinner tonight. (laughs) You know, for some folks, particularly those in the church, prayer is something we do to impress other people. We pray long-winded prayers with extra spiritual jargon in order to convince others that we're the real deal and that God listens to us. I remember my college group way back when, back in the 90s, and how we would have these long prayer meetings. And I assure you that they would have been half the length if we weren't all just trying to impress each other with what great spiritual wisdom we had in our prayers. Well, thirdly, And this is another view, and perhaps this is a uh, minority view, that prayer is the heartbeat of the Christian life. There are those who believe that it truly is the very engine of the spiritual life. And this is the view that agrees with the great 16th century reformer Martin Luther, who when he was asked one day what his plans were for that day, he replied, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. As uh, one Christian author put it, he was too busy not to pray. Too busy not to pray. Well, today we're continuing in our sermon series called His Story, and we're journeying chronologically through scripture from the old to the new, and we're seeing how all of history is in fact God's story. It's his story. It's his rescue plan for mankind. And today we come to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, which contains perhaps the most famous of all prayers, the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus right here, he's teaching his followers and they ask him, how should they pray? They've seen him do it. And so like any good student of a rabbi or a teacher, they ask him, well, how should we do it? And what we'll see in his response is that in God's eyes, prayer isn't a crutch. It isn't a means to impress, but rather prayer is the very heartbeat of the Christian life. And to live without it is like trying to live without oxygen. To quote Martin Luther again, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. This is how important prayer is to those who follow Jesus. So let's turn to our scripture reading. Please pull out the bulletin you got on the way in. If you have that, open that up. We'll look at the gospel reading or you can follow along on the screens or pull out your Bible app on your phone if you prefer to do it that way. And what we see right away is that prayer is not for impressing others. Verses 5 through 8. Prayer is not for impressing others. And when you pray, says Jesus, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. As one pastor put it, the fewer the words, the better the prayer. The fewer the words, the better the prayer. No need for flowery language or long-winded sentences. So how should we pray? Well, verse 6 already gives us one pointer. It should be in secret. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't pray in public? Well, if if that's the case, then we probably shouldn't be doing what we're doing today because much of our service is public prayer. No, clearly there are other verses in Scripture where people do pray publicly. That's not wrong. The point, though, is that we should make private prayer The foundation of our prayer life, not just relying on when we come together publicly. Private prayer, day in, day out, should be the foundation. We should have a time each day when we retreat from the world and all of its distractions, and we talk with God. Whether that's first thing in the day, or last thing at night, or somewhere in between. Or whether that's in your living room, when no one else is around, or in your bedroom, when all is quiet. Find a quiet place where you can truly stop and listen and speak with God. This is really what prayer is. The evangelist Billy Graham put it really simply. Prayer is simply a two-way conversation between you and God. And it's hard to have a conversation when people or text messages or TV shows keep butting in. So leave the phone somewhere else or turn it off. And make sure that you don't have a screen on in the background. Find a quiet place where you won't be disturbed. And in this place, let your prayer be something like the prayer that Jesus then teaches his disciples to pray. Short, simple, and genuine. Short, simple, and genuine. And while I don't believe it's wrong to say it exactly as he taught it, in fact, we will do that later in our service, I also think there are some principles for prayer that we can use to shape our own prayers from the Lord's Prayer. The first one is this. Number one, we are to praise God in our prayers. Verse nine, pray then like this, Jesus says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To quote Billy Graham once again, I believe that the greatest form of prayer is praise to God. And it would seem that Jesus would agree because the first thing that he has his disciples do is to lift up praises to God. Now, why would that be the case? Well, first and foremost, because because God deserves our praise and it reorientates our very being towards him as we lift up our praises to God. And he deserves them always and in all situations, whatever we're going through. He still deserves to be praised because he has rescued us out of darkness and nothing Nothing can take that away from us. And this is the greatest gift that any one of us could ever receive. We were dead in our sins, and yet he still made a way upon the cross for us to be saved and to be adopted into his family. And so we praise him as our heavenly, life-giving father. And it's also good news that we can address him as father, not as overlord or emperor of the universe, perhaps. The theologian Frederick Buchner writes this, it is only the words, our Father, that make the prayer bearable. If God is indeed something like a father, then as something like children, maybe we can risk approaching him anyway. Think of how, if you're a parent or a grandparent, how your kid will come up and sit in your lap and ask you of you something, right? That's very much a great picture of what it's like to come before the Father with this prayer. And so we hallow his name. Which simply means to honor him as holy. That's all it means when we say that. We're honoring him as holy. And notice though, maybe you caught this or didn't catch this, we don't do it alone. Did you see that? He is our father. Our father, not my father. As one commentator writes, take a good long look at the Lord's Prayer. It's all we, us, and our. There's no me, I, or mine anywhere. The greatest prayer that was ever composed is not one that has been infected by our rampant Western individualism. No, it's corporate in its nature. It recognizes that followers of Jesus belong to each other. We were not created to live in isolation. And however hard being the church is, and trust me, friends, it can be really hard, right? It can be really hard, We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want you just to look around. Look around at the people around you. Some of you even struggle to do that. Take a look. Take a look. These are family. They're not just people we come together with once a week for an hour and we worship God. This is family. We're meant to live as family, to invite each other into our lives and to be praying together and for each other. These are our brothers and sisters and God is our Father. Christian pastor Samir Salmanovich writes, When I pray the Lord's Prayer, I begin with the first word, hour. And I stop and ask myself, who do I include in this hour? I remind myself that the story of God is bigger than my personal story. You see, we're reminded from the very first petition that ultimately this is his story, not just my story. And as such, it's a story that we live out with other human beings. And so we praise him, and all prayer should incorporate praise to God. Well, next we see that we are to seek his will, not our own. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The English writer Aldous Huxley uh, pessimistically once wrote this. This petition of the Lord's Prayer is repeated daily by millions who have not the slightest intention of letting anyone's will be done, but their own. (laughs) Ever done that? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. (laughs) And perhaps we pray this way because of what one of my favorite poets, um, Wendell Berry, writes. This is what is meant by thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer. It means that your will and God's will may not be the same. It means that there's a good possibility that you won't get what you pray for. It means that in spite of your prayers, you are going to suffer. It's not a particularly comforting thought, is it? (laughs) Right? That when we pray, thy will be done, we may be praying for our own suffering in any given situation. God's will being done in our lives may actually mean that we will experience rejection, rejection by others, even close family members, or we might experience the disappointment of seeing others turning away from God or the pain <clears throat> excuse me, of long-held hopes and plans going unrealized or a relationship that comes to an end or a financial cost that's too hard or that's hard to bear. Jesus tells us that suffering is one of the things that Christians can be sure will happen in this life if they truly follow him. But as we saw in the Beatitudes last week when Kendall was preaching, he also tells us that we are blessed when we suffer for him. That's the good news. His will is not always our will, but his will is always best for us and for those for whom we pray. And so we ask that his kingdom may come in all situations. So we praise him. And we ask for his will to be done, not ours. And then thirdly, we ask him to provide. The second half of the Lord's Prayer changes focus from God to our own lives. And it begins with verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Frederick Buchner writes, you need to be bold to speak the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Give us, forgive us, don't test us, deliver us. It, if it takes guts to face the omnipotence that is God's, as we do in the first half, It takes perhaps no less to face the impotence that is ours. We can do nothing without God. We can have nothing without God. Without God, we are nothing. And I think this is one of the main reasons many of us struggle to pray, is because we struggle to accept that we need the help of anyone else. And the idea that without God's help, we can do nothing, well, that's incomprehensible to our modern understanding of life. After all, we put the food on the table, right? We did the work that provided for that. Unfortunately, I think it's a place where our affluence does us a great disservice when it comes to our relationship with God. And often it turns us into agnostics at best in the way we live our lives, professing a belief in God, but they're never putting our trust in him. But the Lord's Prayer reminds us that without him, we won't even have food on our table each day. And it's a great reason to stop and pray before each meal if you don't do that already. Whether that's in your home, sitting in your office, whether it's next door at Orlando's, further down the road at Laura Alberts, wherever it might be, stop and pray. The food you're eating is only there because God gave it to you. And much like the clothes that you're wearing today, or the car that perhaps you drove in here, or the home that you will return to. God is the giver of all good gifts. And so humbly we come before him with our requests. Or perhaps even harder than this petition is the next one. Ask for his forgiveness but also recognize that we must forgive others. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. You know, sin creates an obligation or a debt, as we have in this translation to God, that we can't possibly repay. And while many of us have recognized this and praise God, we've repented and turned back to him. We're also now called to be eager, eager even, to forgive those who have sinned against us filled with gratitude for the forgiveness we've received each day. We're called to forgive others in the same way. Otherwise, as we read in verses 14 through 15, we put ourselves in a really precarious position. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so whether it's a bully at school Or maybe a mean sibling or a hateful or gossiping work colleague or neighbor or an abusive or neglectful spouse. We must forgive. Not overlooking their sins or condoning them or even uh, not seeking justice for what they've done. That's still right. But giving them over to God and no longer holding these sins against them. And this kind of behavior is, in fact, according to Jesus' words, proof that our sins are forgiven and that we are, in fact, saved. Well, the final petition tells us that we are to ask for God's protection. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, Jesus was not a stranger to temptation. Even though he was God, he was also fully man. And he wasn't a stranger to the power of Satan. After all, just before this very teaching, he's been in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, and he's managed to defeat him. And so well aware of the spiritual battle that all human beings face, he completes this prayer with a reminder to pray for his protection. And each one of us should do the same. You know, daily, we too are attacked by the evil one. And yet most of us, I think, are oblivious to that. We don't realize that he's out there trying to destroy all the good that God is doing in our lives. We are completely blind to what's happening. Don't be ignorant of what's going on around you and within you or where you are susceptible to be attacked. The devil is prowling around seeking to destroy. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, "'We are weak, but God is strong.'" The Christian who does not know his weakness can, therefore, neither pray this prayer nor experience God's strength. The Christian who knows his weakness, but is a praying Christian, will be garrisoned by the Lord's strength. No wonder the ancient church added its own doxology to the Lord's prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so there we have it. First, we are to praise God. We praise him. Then we are to seek his will, not our own. Then we ask his provision and we ask his forgiveness, remembering to forgive others. And finally, we ask his protection. I wonder this week, would you commit to praying like this? Whether it's you need to just say the prayer itself as written. Or whether you want to take it as a prayer and just petition by petition, just pass it out a bit. And as you do that, repeat ones. This is something I've done in my own life. Repeat certain petitions that you're really wrestling with or you really need God's help with at this time. Take the time to pray as Jesus teaches us to pray. Find a quiet space and repeat these petitions. And see what God's called to your mind. See what he might be saying to you as you pray. And as you do this, you may be surprised at how God works in you and even begins to change you. R.C. Sproul once wrote this. Prayer does change things, all kinds of things, but the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. Do you want to become more like Jesus? Then pray as he taught us and see how you're transformed by him and others around you are transformed also. Let prayer not be an afterthought, but let it be the first thought and let it be the very heartbeat of your life in Christ. Well, having said that, it seems appropriate that we should pray. So let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done for us, that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that we might live and not die, that we might be set free from sin. Thank you, Lord God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heavenly Father, we pray for your will, not our will. Lord God, would you help us to submit ourselves to what you are doing? And would you help us to have eyes to see what you are doing in our lives and in the lives of others and to partner with you in your kingdom work? Give us this day our daily bread. Help us, Lord Jesus, to turn to you each and every day and to recognize all the good gifts that you give to us, but to also recognize that you long to give us more as well. Help us to stand before you each day and to ask of you what we would need. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We recognize that even in this last week, this last day, this last hour, we have sinned against you. And we pray that you will forgive us. But We also recognize that there are those we have not forgiven. Lord Jesus, help us to be filled with gratitude to the point where we can forgive others, Lord God, and recognize our need to do so. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, protect us from the work of the evil one. Help us to have eyes to see what he is doing, not to be fearful, recognizing that you are much stronger than he is and that we can turn to you, but just to be aware that he is seeking to destroy all that you have done that is good in our lives. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.